So, on to the next beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, we always need to keep in the back of our mind the audience to whom Jesus is speaking, but we're going to really touch on them directly towards the end of this episode, conversation, talk, whatever you want to call this. Anyway, so, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And I was thinking about this. The key word here is son. And so a question popped into my head. Well, what's a son? That's actually not meant to be a ridiculous question. One of the things that I've come to as I've observed the world around me is that people nowadays, at least in North Texas where I live, I would wager most of the U.S. And you know what? It's possible that it's actually been most people throughout history. We just don't speak or use words with a real understanding of the fullness of what they mean. And especially in a cultural context, which is so different from the one within which these Beatitudes were delivered, we really do need to take a step back. And with something as simple as a son, we need to ask, well, what exactly is that? What is it to be a son? And that's not some highsafalutin mystical question. It's just one of definition. And so, by way of example, it reminded me of a word that some of my Latin students often mistranslate. It's the word uinus. I-U-V-E-N-U-S. U-N. Yeah, there it is. Nope, I-S. Can't spell without writing it out. Anyway, stick a tail on that first I, and it's where you get the English word like juvenile. And a uinus is a young man. But oftentimes, some of my freshmen will mistranslate it as young boy. They think the key word is young, but it's not. And they're completely unaware of the fact that a young man, not just biologically in states of, you know, like physical development and maturity, but also in terms of social expectations and obligations, rights, privileges, duties, is wildly different from somebody we would term a young boy. Now, I could say that it's because modern American teenagers are so used to basically just being either children or adults, and, you know, to them, a kid is a kid, whether or not he's 6 or 16. So that's what I mean. We've actually lost nuance and a full breadth of understanding, and we just boil things down to synonyms. So, a you in this is a young man not a young boy, and like I said, that comes with a lot of social and familial expectations, obligations, rights, privileges, duties, and basically a way I've always tried to explain a young man to some of my students is that a young man is like a man in training. There is a rite of passage ceremony in Roman society, very similar to most ancient societies, be they roughly tribal, rural, unquote uncivilized or even the more highly civilized ones the greeks the romans the egyptians whomever even the ancient hebrews the bar mitzvah this rite of passage ceremony where a boy becomes a man now he's not a full man no but he's on the man side of things and so you could say he is a young man a man in training almost like a man apprentice and if you look at it that way then a man apprentice or a young man is he's on the man side of things but he's fully developing into a mature man and so to really understand what a young man is we have to actually start by asking what is a man 
Because a man is what a young man is supposed to develop into. And it's the same thing here. If we're going to ask the question, what is a son? Well, we need to start with, well, who's his father? And forgive me if this is a hard shift, but there are a couple passages that I was thinking about as I was really reading and considering to, you know, tell you all of this. And one of them is in Mark chapter 12, parable of the tenants. So quick and dirty explanation. This parable is part of a response that Jesus gives to the chief priests, scribes, and elders when they challenge him, asking, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, the, this thing, or the, these things that Jesus is doing would be things like turning over the money tables in the temple courts and making his triumphal entry. That would be the most reasonable thing, antecedents for the pronoun this that the religious establishment is referring to. And that's fair. And Jesus says to them, I'll ask you a question. Answer me. And I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And the, the religious establishment, they murmur amongst themselves. They can't come to a decision because they have reasons for saying yes, reasons for saying no, both of which are not good for them. And Jesus finally says, well, they say, we don't know. And he says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But he actually does. Because he immediately, or at least as Mark records it, the next thing that happens is, and then he began to speak to them in parables. And the first parable he says is the parable of the tenants, where basically a man establishes a plot of land, makes it ready to farm and cultivate, even builds infrastructure, and then he lets it out to tenants and he goes away. But when it comes time for him to reap his fair share, his due, as the landlord of the produce of that land, he sends a representative a servant, a slave, to the land to take what is rightfully his of the harvest from the tenants who have been working the land, ideally understood as working the land on the landlord's behalf. And the tenants don't like it. They beat the guy, drive him away. This happens a few more times. Finally, a slave is... Uh, a few slaves are killed, and the man, I'll start quoting, I guess, from Mark 12, chapter 6, chapter 12, verse 6. He, the landlord, had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. Well, why? Why would they respect the son when they didn't respect any of the others? What is there inherent about the son that makes him, that makes the landlord so confident surely they'll respect my son as if it's just a given expectation it's because a son as the heir to his father is the living embodiment of the glory of his father the son is the one who will eventually step into his father's place the son is the one who by all right and authority can exercise and carry out the will of his father in a way that nobody else can. His entire purpose is to be the arm of his father. And as a result, the son will therefore reflect the power, glory, authority, purpose, attitude 
of the Father who guides, directs, and sends him. So, let's contrast this. Take it over to Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is a good place to see where other people are referenced as sons of God. Forgive me if this is a bit of a hard transition. Uh, so let's go ahead and turn there. Sorry, rustling through my Bible. You know what? I'm not sorry. You're still listening, so you must be okay with it. All right. In Psalm 82, starting at the beginning, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. And later on, in verse 6, God says to those around him, You are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Now, this psalm has always been a little bit, mm, what do we do with this? I mean, we're monotheists, but here, you know, the scripture is saying that God is in the presence of other gods. What's up with this? Well, that's a problem with translation. Because the word that's being translated as gods, little g in both verse 1 and verse 6, is the Hebrew Elohim. Which, yes, is a Hebrew word that is used for God himself. It is also used in referencing pagan deities, those who are acknowledged to be false or non-existent. But because linguistically they exist, there still needs to be a noun, just as if we Christians talk about Zeus and he is a god, even though we don't believe that he actually exists. But the word also it's not God generically, but it's also this idea of like strong ones, mighty men, those who have authority to judge and rule. And so it's interesting then that God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment and he asks, how long will you, O other gods, judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Now, it's been brought to my attention that there's a particular scholar, I don't remember his name, that's probably good. Not for any bad reason, it's just good. Anyway, who knows Hebrew far more than I do, because I don't know it at all, and he apparently is you know, one of the world's foremost experts on the language, at least scripturally speaking. And he would assert that here, the other gods being referenced are actually spiritual beings. Consensus among other commentators is that these other gods are the earthly rulers of Israel. Those who exercise authority over God's people. I tend to fall into that latter camp, but I'm going to make the suggestion that even if... I, I think that that point is actually irrelevant, because the psalm is poetry. And poetry is often not meant to be literal. Quite often poetry gives a scenario in a certain narrative format where an underlying point is really supposed to be made abundantly clear. And so I guess along those lines, accepting the fact that the gods referenced here may actually be other divine beings, I would wager that speculating on that and their nature and coming up with some sort of a theology about how it is that God has established these invisible spirits to govern the world and all, it misses the point of the psalm. Because if God is calling out these other powerful beings who have been set in authority over portions of his earth, authority which is derivative from him. They are the Elohim, and he is El Elyani. I butchered that, forgive me. He is the Most High. 
They are high. He is the most high, which means their power, their authority to rule over wherever it is that they rule is derivative from him and is supposed to reflect him. Any authority which is bestowed upon them and any respect which is due them as sons of God is because of their very specifically derivative nature from the one who established them. And so it begs the question then, he says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Meaning you are not actually behaving like my sons. You are not exercising the authority in a way that reflects me, my priorities, my purposes, my character. You are out of line. Jesus swings this back around, actually, when he's talking with James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Now, depending on which accounts you read, in one of them, in Mark, it is the two men themselves who make this request, and Matthew, with their mother who asks on their behalf, again, irrelevant, but they ask Jesus for a favor. He's like, what's up? They say, when you come into your kingdom... Appoint one of us to sit at your right and the other at your left. Basically, they're asking Jesus to bestow on the two of them specifically the highest powers, the highest positions of derivative authority. Jesus is like, you don't know what you're asking there, buddy. Buddies, plural. They're like, yeah, we do. He's like, uh. And he goes on to mention how Gentile rulers lord it over their people. And belittle them, abuse them. And he says, it shall not be so with you. And Jesus goes on to make the point that those who must be first in the kingdom must be servants. And here's how that ties in. So let's take one more swing. Promise we'll land this plane back at the mountainside. The Samaritan. What allowed that Samaritan to be such a good neighbor to the man that he found beaten and bruised on the roadside? The answer would seem to be shalom, peace. The Samaritan, even though the Samaritans as a people group, as a tribe, as an identity, were at enmity. I'm not sure if that's the right prepositional phrase. They were at en- in enmity, whatever. They're antagonistic towards the Jews. And the Jews reciprocally so towards them. And a lot of people would buy into that. Oh, I hate you because, you know, you're this. I hate you because you're a cat person and I like dogs. That's actually not true. I am a cat person, but I have a lot of friends who roll their eyes when I talk about my cute little cat who's sniffing my gym bag. Anyway, the Samaritan, as an actual individual, an actual human being, he didn't buy into that. Kind of like Achilles says in the opening book of the Iliad, what do I have against the Trojan? They've done me no wrong. I don't actually hate any of them. The beef is all yours and your family's, Agamemnon. And so the Samaritan here is, he's perfectly at peace, person to person, man to man, with the Jew that he finds on the roadside. And it's this peace. Dig into that word shalom because it would take far too long to really explicate here. Such a uniquely pregnant, specific Hebrew word. There's not really a good translation for it other than peace. 
And it's probably a pretty good one, but see previous statements about us just being unthoughtful with our vocabulary. Anyway, when we say that the Samaritan was at peace with this other man, that means that he had no covetousness of him. There was no contention, no envy, no malice. He was able to seek the best and genuine good for this other person. Contrast that with most of us, the people on the hillside, the poor, the destitute, the physically infirm, the mentally ill, those who are downtrodden, really just little orphan Annie, it's a hard knock life for us. How easy would it be for them? How easy would it be for many of us? Sorry, that was an evangelical turn. I usually try and avoid those things. To seek, well, it's not really seeking. How easy would it be for us when viewing those that we think have just a better lot in life to operate out of covetousness, contention, envy, malice, and all sorts of other things? I'm looking at my notes here. Ah, yes. Swing it back around. Paul talks about these things in Romans 12. Um, 12, 18. He says that, uh, as a primary modus operandi, way of doing things, we Christians are, to the extent possible, so far as it depends upon us, to be at peace, this idea of shalom, with all men. Ah, uh, that's what I was looking for in my notes. But most of us, because we're human, wishing to occupy various positions of power like the sons of Zebedee, or wishing to have a life that just doesn't suck, our basic way of operating is eventually to fall into other kinds of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. All that's from Ephesians 4. We are unrighteous, meaning just we don't operate rightly. These ideas of unrighteousness, which produce covetousness, malice, envy, deceit, strife, Romans 1.29. So, when Jesus looks at these people, most of whom probably, if they don't have open animosity towards somebody else, for whatever reason, they probably harbor it in their hearts or could easily do so if so prompted. Jesus looks at them and says, you're all sons of Zebedee, you're seeking the wrong thing. It's not those in a position of stature or power or prestige. Those who have money, those who have clout, those who have influence. It's not the guys with the legs who can run and get the money and whatever. Those aren't the ones who reflect the grandeur of God and therefore operate with his authority. It's the peacemakers. They are the ones who actually strongly exhibit the character of God. It's the ones who, like the Samaritan, regardless of all other situations and circumstances, prejudices, labels, whatever, can be at personal peace 
so long as it depends upon him with any other person with whom he comes across. And it has to be person to person. We get too big and we start thinking about political peace. This isn't about pacifism or no war. This is ground level trenches, man to man. That's it. And it's within the bonds of peace that we can be ambassadors like Paul of reconciliation. Reconciliation man to man, reconciliation of man to God, helping people be reconciled to God because they're willing to listen to us because we approach them with the open hands of peace. By what authority do we speak? By what authority do we make declarations? By what authority do we operate in godly fashions? Making claims? Well, we do it because we're sons of God. Prove it. I'm a peacemaker. I haven't yelled at you. I haven't belittled you. If I have been cross with you, it's been just appropriately so, like Jesus with the money changers. He didn't lose his mind. It was calculated. It was deliberate. It was intentional. And it was sober. Jesus didn't go ape shit in the temple. He knew exactly what he was doing. And ultimately, he is a peacemaker, because even the purpose of that would have been reconciliation. A money changer comes to him, and what would Jesus probably have done? Engage him in conversation. And if the guy's ready, like Zacchaeus, Jesus would have welcomed him with open arms. Because so much as it depended upon Jesus, he was at peace with that man. Just like the landlord was at peace with the tenants. It was the tenants who were all antagonistic. It was the tenants who killed the landlord's son. And we can't help that. Somebody else might not be at peace with us. And we're going to have to deal with that. And that hurts. And we are going to be tempted, really tempted to harbor that, to justify mocking them, even if we don't do anything to them. But then, you know, see later in the Sermon on the Mount, so you haven't actually killed a guy. How do you feel about him? What do you say about him? What do you envision about him? What do you daydream about him? Oh, all those things. Yeah, you're a murderous tool. All right, now I'm rambling. Bring it back, though, to the people on the hillside, their situations, and how they're people, people just like us, prone to all these things. We really want those elevated positions, like the sons of Zebedee seem to be seeking, mostly because they've experienced a life where they've had the exact opposite. Pump your brakes a bit. What is it to be a son of God? A mighty man, one who's recognized and deferred to because of his position as a son. Peacemakers. Think about that as you seek an exit to your hard knock life.